0: Welcome to Raising Rochester. I'm Pete Navosny. Raising Rochester is brought to you by the Children's Agenda and focuses on the key issues affecting children and families in Rochester and New York State. My guest today is Sarah Sarah Taylor. Sarah is the project director and founder of of the BIPOC Parent Mental Health Project um, and is a longtime advocate for better mental health services for children in this community. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Pete.
0: All right. So we're going to get into a lot of different topics today and hopefully have a, have a good conversation about what's, what's happening in this community. But before uh, we do all that, I, I like to give our listeners a sense of who it is I'm speaking to, that person's background, um, and how they got involved in the work they do today. So do you want to just give us a couple minutes on sort of your story and, and how you got involved in this work?
1: Sure, thank you. Um, I am not new to the field of health and human services, but I am new to the aspect of being a parent with lived experience. Um, I spent many years in this community uh, as a leader, as a project director in homeless housing, as a vice president in a nonprofit, as a case manager, outreach worker for many years in adult mental health services, uh, working with the late Tom Ferraro over at Foodlink around capacity building for faith-based grassroots. So a wide range of experience from a direct care perspective uh, to a leadership executive leadership level. Uh, I am a social worker. I always admit I will always be a social worker. But in this space, I found myself uh, several years ago, uh, helping out a niece who had an infant, and she was not able to take care of her daughter. And so I, being an auntie, uh, did not want to see my great niece in the child welfare system. So I stepped up and said that I would help her out for six months. And six months has turned into 11 years. And so I am raising a great niece as my own child. And about three years ago, she began to exhibit some very severe symptoms, uh, psychiatric crises, and we found ourselves in and out of psychiatric emergencies, um, having uh, mental hygiene arrests, Um, and ultimately resulting in her needing a higher level of care. So this journey uh, has been pretty much a three-year journey that we have been in and out of crisis as a family. And for me, uh, as someone that left my very lucrative full-time job. uh, Because when you have a child in crisis, you can have all the FMLA and PLA you want. When your child's in crisis, you can't function and lead anyone. So I made the decision to take a step back uh, from an executive leadership role and take a training position at a nonprofit that would allow me more flexibility to really advocate for my child. And, you know, this journey of being uh, in and out of psychiatric emergencies and watching the differences uh, between children uh, that have medical conditions, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, um, you know, kidney cancer, asthma, um, how they, the level of care and sympathy that they get and need uh, was different yeah. than having a child in the mental health system. And so I began to talk to other parents that were in psychiatric emergencies too, and realize, you know, something's wrong with this picture. There is clearly something wrong with this picture of how children and particularly children of color were treated in a very, very complex system that is not easy to navigate.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, So maybe we can kind of get into some of those um some of those challenges navigating um, that system and, and maybe how it contrasts with healthcare systems, because I think to, to kind of build on your point I mean there's people speak a lot now I, I hear it when people say mental health care is healthcare care or they you know the, the, that there's an effort to reduce stigmas around mental health issues and, and things like that but it seems like the the systems that are out there have not sort of they may be trying in certain aspects and obviously there's a there's many wonderful people who work in, in that field, but the, the structure of the system, the funding of the systems, the navigation families need to handle isn't, doesn't acknowledge that reality that, that it's healthcare like anything else, right? So can you speak to maybe some of the sort of, whether you wanna speak about specific challenges or just what are those, those disparities, I guess, between the way we treat something like, something tragically like childhood cancer to something that's also very tragic, which is when children have like serious psychiatric issues, mental health issues.
1: No, absolutely. You know, uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so we are time spending- recording. Yes. Uh, You know, a lot of time doing outreach, uh, really focusing on combating the stigma. There is not just in society, but I think when we look at the academic culture of medicine, and, and as doctors are being trained and nurses and other professionals, that there is often still that stigma within systems and this society. Right away, if something happens, we want to label that person uh, mentally ill when we know that those that are impacted uh, by mental health conditions statistically speaking are not necessarily violent and out there com- committing horrific crimes so you said it stigma is huge stigma is still huge regardless of socioeconomic factors regardless ethnicity stigma is still very huge there's a lot of guilt and shame uh, from a parent perspective, I speak to parents all the time—urban, suburban, suburban, uh, rural communities. There's a lot of shame and guilt that we go through, as well as being blamed for our children's condition. That is one. Uh, when you put racial, uh, ethnic factors on it, our children are suspended at a higher rate. Our children are often fall out of the uh, mental health system and end up in the criminal justice system at higher rates when you look at data. And we haven't even talked about mental hygiene arrests, but I want to talk about the complexity of prior to Medicaid redesign, we already had a system that was not necessarily designed and built with the parent input. And so you have these systems and policies and practices that often don't make sense or don't necessarily meet the needs of family, whether it's community-based services, having enough of community-based services, or even the hours that services are delivered. And I'm talking pre-COVID. And so when Medicaid redesign happened, there was a scramble of how is the children's mental health system going to look? Well, unfortunately, many of us, even those of us that have been in crisis, we were on waiting lists for services for eight weeks to six months, some of the community-based therapeutic services. And when you look at staffing and who is moving into uh, being trained in clinical roles, it takes time. It takes time. Yes. And and so you already have a, a system that is backed up and has mm-hmm. multiple wait lists. And then you put the pandemic on top of it. I also want to highlight the fact that when you have a child in crisis, waiting six to eight weeks to get an appointment is not helpful. Mm-hmm. And even if you are seen on a, in a crisis slot, when we think about continuity of care and building relationships, if I'm seeing a crisis therapist that may not be my, ultimately be my therapist, what does that say for having to tell my story over and over again? Yeah and continuity of care. So you have the wait list, you have the stigma, you also have some of the systems. I can tell you right now, I can call some of our hotlines, I can call some of our resource uh, service organizations, and they then they may hand me a sheet with 10 resources. And I guarantee nine out of the 10, I don't qualify for. So while we have all these great resources on paper, the reality is families don't necessarily fit into one model or over or system, agency. So I think we, we have all these campaigns about hotlines and resources, and you talk to parents, they'll say, I don't even qualify for those resources.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. And that's a place where, these systems are really failing in that we place such a burden or expectation for the, the case management of sorts, the navigation to be on that parent, for that parent to figure out what, what services they may qualify for, for the sort of the time tax that goes into all of that, where you have to then spend time as a parent with a child in crisis, you know, researching these things, figuring out if you meet the eligibility criteria for that, figure out if your health insurance covers this thing. And, and it's this this patchwork, right, of, of of services that may be wonderful, but it would be great in a, in a better world if the systems that were set up to serve these families would, they would identify what families are eligible for, help them figure out within a range of choices what, what's the best fit for them and their, their service needs, right? And instead, we just, we place this expectation on families to be able to, to, to navigate that. And that's where I think some of these Inequities of, of access, ability to figure out these systems, you know, there, there's a lot of other things that when you place a, that expectation on families, well, there, there are families with more resources than others. There are families that have more support and connections and, and things like that. And that's where you start to see some real inequities of, of access and outcome, right?
1: No, absolutely. To give you an example, um, at one period a couple of years ago, we were in and out of our local uh, psychiatric emergency, in and out, uh, told, go home, see your therapist the next day, or contact your health home care manager. And we're in and out of crisis psychiatric emergency where you're up there 15 to 24 hours. And so it took a school social worker, not one of the hospital um, psychiatric emergency social workers or staff, it was a school social worker that said to us, do you think you may qualify for in-home crisis therapeutic services? Mm-hmm. And so when I look at that, we're in and out of crisis for months and it none of those practitioners in that psychiatric emergency was able to say to us, you know what, we're going to link you to this in-home crisis team that can work with you for eight weeks. So while I recognize I do, as a social worker, have a lens of privilege, I speak to hundreds of parents who don't have the knowledge or the skill set or the relationships, and they just get so discouraged and frustrated. And I can tell you, after what we've seen with Daniel Prude, So many families were contacting us and participating in our support group that said, you know what? My my child's cutting themselves and I'm afraid to call the police right now. I don't know who to call. And so we don't even know the magnitude of the crisis that we're dealing with right now because we have a lot of people suffering silently.
0: Yeah, so you've made mention of it a couple of times It's probably probably worth um, just exploring a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about that that project that you have where you are working with a lot of other parents um, in this region, some of the kind of connections you've made and what sort of brought that about and and, and what you've been up to with it?
1: No, absolutely. We are working on a walking through the parents lens and shoes, navigating the mental health system. Many people in this community have participated in the poverty simulator activity, where it is a systems change to really have stakeholders look at what is it like to walk through the shoes of someone living in poverty. And so talking to a number of parents that found ourselves in crisis and frustrated with the system, frustrated with wait lists frustrated being in psychiatric emergencies for hours and being sent home, frustrated uh, having our children mental hygiene and, 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 um, manhandled and frustrated having family members say to us, well, you know, you can come over for a family picnic, but don't bring the child, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, lots of shame, frustrated with our children getting suspended at higher rates due to their illness. And so I began to talk to other parents and we were looking at the model of the poverty simulator and we began to convene planning groups of parents, parents, parent advocates in safe spaces. And so we had about four sessions thus far in person and one session virtually really walking through four key areas that we call pain points for parents crisis services, stigma, household and family dynamics, and the mental health system in general. And we walk through activities, success challenges and opportunities. And our hope is to take that data, work with our university partners and CCSI and others, such as the Children's Agenda, and roll out this systems change activity um, and to have doctors, funders, uh, nurses, teachers, law enforcement walk through a, a half a day activity, what is it like to be a parent, to have child protective called on you when your child's in crisis yeah. and you decide that you can't bring him or her home from the hospital? And so we, this is about systems change. Um, that what's unique about this project is that it is parent-led. It's parent-led and it has never been done like this before. We have a lot of system of care projects going on right now, but they're not necessarily parent-led and through the lens of a parent sharing their lived experience.
0: Yeah, and, and to, to maybe ask the obvious question, why is it important for the for for this project to be parent-led? But then also, um, I watched the uh, presentation you gave. I was part of some CCSI uh, event there, and you spoke a lot about the need to bring parents in in the planning stages of things to help formulate rfps and other things why is why is that why is that important i guess
1: well you know our model is nothing with us you know nothing about us without us and and the fact is is you're designing projects and models for our children mm-hmm. And how are you expecting it to work without getting our input of what are some of the challenges that we are experiencing? To give you an example, we heard a couple of weeks ago that one of our large healthcare systems, which is great to hear, will be rolling out Children's Crisis Center, which is new. Uh, and will be new state of the art i'm sure and then we also know there's some assertive community treatment models that were awarded that are you know to serve children in psychiatric crisis all of these are being rolled out in design without the parent input and i'm not just talking about having a family peer advocate on staff which is great yeah. but having parent input in the design And the strategy, you know, we are the ones using your service. And so you're designing models without our input. And the comments I have made to the Office of Mental Health and on the CCSI Tuesday talks were even before we get to implementation, when it comes to RFPs, releasing contracts and grants and RFPs. Our stakeholders, our licensures, that's where they need to get our input, not to wait until you award a grant yeah. to a program. And they call us around the table twice a month for parent advisory board. That is what you call check the box yeah. that I call check the box and not sincerely wanting and, and having parents leave the strategy. You know, if we're invited to the table, we'll tell you what our lived experience has been, success, challenges, and opportunities. And that's all we want to do is to have a voice at the highest level. Don't wait until we're in crisis or don't wait till you're ready to implement and then come back to us or or a service is not working and you're wondering why we're not using it. Well, you never asked us from the beginning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there are areas in our in our community or systems in our community, or you could take it wherever you are, where where we are doing a good job in terms of including parents, um, where they, they are upstream of some of these decisions, or is it your sense that kind of across the board, we're doing things in this community the way you just referenced a, a specific example?
1: Well, I, I, I do think uh, around the nation, including the state, there has been a lot of emphasis on the values of peers, the values of peer advocates, the values of family peer advocates, which in uh, the continuum of uh, children's uh, services, it is a billable service. It is a service having a family peer advocate. However, I do think we have a long way to go. Uh, Families together in New York State, is a strong voice at the state level advocating for more family youth, uh, the youth voice and some of these services and systems. Um, So I do think we have strong movements, um, but when you think about power dynamics for when you particularly talking about poor families that are living in high poverty census tracts that may not have connections or the experience or the voice, or feel empowered, or that the welcome at tables. We have a long way to go because we are spending millions of dollars in billing Medicaid services, but are we being intentional about getting feedback from those parents and caregivers? We're not being intentional. And I think we can do a better job. Uh, There are, I've been very impressed uh, with Rochester Regional Health System. Uh, They are in schools. They have five school-based wellness clinics. And I know Eve and Dr. Wilson have done amazing jobs at really letting the community know they are concerned regarding the social and emotional health of our children. So while they may not be there yet, they are trying uh, to have organizations step up and acknowledge, you know what? We have some gaps. I think that is... Uh, huge for me, Pete, uh, for organizations to say, you know what? We don't have strong parent voices. We want to do better. Can we partner with you? And not organizations that want to use us around the table when they're writing a grant or when they're in trouble, but providers and stakeholders in the analogy that I use that value a partnership. With parents that believe that there's added value to partnering with parents, we have a lot of healthcare disparities. Mm. Uh, we don't even have a pulse on the mental health disparities. I'll know we we do know some numbers, and we have the, you know the highest rates of childhood poverty. So you can't really help our children without engaging parents and caregivers. And we can't keep saying they're non-compliant or not engaged. We have to be intentional about going to the communities, particularly black and brown communities with the lens of racial equity and not going in like a savior, not just throwing money at things, but really being intentional regarding looking through Policies and processes from the lens of racial equity.
0: Yeah, and I really want to I dig into that a bit. Um, the, I, I, when you were speaking about the, asking questions about like why families aren't getting certain services or, or saying you know they're not compliant, I was, this is not this world. But but the Children's you know, we do a lot of work on trying to improve access to like early intervention services, preschool special education services. And I just re- recall a few years ago speaking to somebody. Um, <clears throat> Who worked in state government and looking at how the number of families that were referred to and evaluated for early intervention services sort of withdrew from services before they started. So they were found eligible, they're referred to a speech-language pathologist or a PT or physical therapist, occupational therapist, whoever, whatever the child's needs were. And you know some percentage of those families say, no, we don't want this. And the number was increasing And the person just kind of wrote it off as like, well, you know, families make choices about what they need and what they don't need. And if they don't want the service, like that can't, you can't ding us on that. It's like, well, the fact that that's increasing, like opens up a lot of questions, right? Like why are, why are families withdrawing? Are they getting a bad experience with the person they were referred to? Was their um, service coordinator, which is kind of a case manager, were they not really following up and asking what that family needed support in order to ensure that the services were uh, working for them? Were they, you know, was there any lens of cultural competency applied to any of this? Like, where were the, like, that is a, that's a failure of a system to, to engage with families and not just like, oh, well, you know, stuff happens. Well, stuff happens, but, but this child would benefit from getting the, this service, presumably, otherwise we shouldn't have a program like that. Um, and it was just really frustrating for me because it's like that's yeah that's not the, the answer that well you know well, what what can you do <laughs> so you, and you we do see a it lot, all the know? time yeah. we
1: see it all the time it's easier to say that families are not in compliant or don't want the service rather than look internally and look at deep rooted systemic issues. When we talk about trust, when we talk about some of our early childhood intervention, when we talk about mental health clinical services, when we talk about OT, when we talk about speech therapy, a lot of those practitioners are not clinicians of color. Yeah. That's, That is Mm. one of the main issues. And not to say, I, I wanna make it clear you don't have to be a clinician or a practitioner of color to be effective. I want to make that clear. I've worked with a number of professionals that get it, that can operate from the cultural lens. But when we're looking at program design, uh, they are typically designed from a European model, centered model, and has not taken into consideration racial equity and cultural lenses. That is the foundation that most of our services are built on. When you look at all of our nonprofits and health and human service organizations across the region, if we look at the majority of them and their executive leadership in boards who are leading them. Uh, And so again, you know, I'm always going to go back to equity, Although, when we talk about mental health, we know mental health itself does not discriminate, but we can't ignore systemic rooted issues uh, that we know are are rooted in in racism and systemic issues that organizations have to look within and become intentional about strategies of engagement and stop blaming and shaming parents and, like, "Ah, it's not working. We tried, you know. Our project has been intentional about being in the hearts of the neighborhood. We have an office over off of Katie Street and we have an office off of Hudson and we have been very aggressive about grassroots outreach. You have to build trust. When we think about medical models, there's always been levels of distrust. And beyond Tuskegee, uh, there is reason for distrust. We're hearing a lot about maternal child health. And, and some of that distrust in the disparities and some of the tragedies related to the inequities. And so we're starting to collect more data and see national data regarding mental health disparities. And we can't just keep blaming patients and consumers. We have to look at our systems and begin to make some internal changes regarding policies and practices, as well as a career pathways in hiring and how we're training at our university levels. So it's not just service providers. We have to also bring in the academic,
0: you yeah. know, community. I know through your project there, you're working with a lot of, of parents of color um, and hearing their stories and seeing some of the sort of specific ways that these systems are Set up in in ways that don't serve them and their families and their needs. What are some of the kind of specific? You know, you don't kind of tell me someone's actual specific story, but what are some of the specific areas that you've noticed, either through your own experience or through some of the parents you've spoken to, where some of these um, racial inequities become really glaring, or where children of color are are treated substantially different, or just that the access to certain services isn't there for families of color because of, whether it's geography, whatever, you know, the the transportation, is some of those things, what are some of those things that really capture kind of the heart of of this issue?
1: Um, I think when you look at data regarding the suspension rate, particularly with children with special needs and behavioral health conditions, when you look at that data of who's suspended at a higher rate, I think when we look at hospital admissions, uh, you know, if we want to really dissect that data of who's admitted and believe that they're actually in crisis versus who sent home and told that it's behavioral. Yeah. When you look at how our treat our children are treated during mental health arrests, uh, the sensitivity and compassion that is showed toward white children, particularly white children in the suburbs compared to children in an urban setting that are of color. Um, you know, those are just a few. When you look at, you know, I can pick up the phone and I can, you know, call an administrator and commissioner about my child being on a wait list a long yeah. time or a parent that has access or private insurance can pick up a phone and call. But you and I know someone that may be living in poverty, that may have a cell phone with minutes on it, uh, that can't wait on hold, that doesn't feel like uh, making it or can't make it to five different appointments before you're actually seen for an intake or handed layers of paperwork to complete an intake. It's it's discouraging. It is very, very discouraging. So those are just some of the inequities that we have seen. And we also know that Many of us that, and I will have some numbers soon, that have had children in psychiatric crisis, how many of us that have also had child protective referrals and Mm -hmm. calls. So what does that say for you as a parent? You get discouraged and say, I'm done with the system. If they're going to call child protective on me, you know, for something that happened uh, during a crisis. And so you have all those layers that parents have to navigate, and then you put socioeconomic factors and ethnic uh, factors and zip code factors on top of it, then we have widening disparities and gaps and inequities.
0: Yeah, and that CPS point is, um, I think connecting back to an earlier part of our conversation where you know you, you spoke about some of the stigma that's associated with, with mental health issues and, and uh, a sense that parents they, they feel blame. They feel like they are responsible for, for this. Mm-hmm. And then w- when the response of the, of the, the system that's meant to support them is yeah, like it's your fault. You, you're we're making a CPS referral because of something you did. How, um, even if that investigation happens and it's completely unfounded and there's no, there's no action taken or whatever, the, the message that that is sent to that parent is, they're going to internalize that forever, right? And and so they're either going to not use services that are out there for fear of a subsequent um, kind of call or, or or something. And even if they, even if they do continue to use these services, they're going to there's going to be a sense of uh, understandable defensiveness around some of this stuff. And and I mean that's that's really it's just it's it's horrible. Yeah,
1: lack of trust is huge. Um, You know, when we're talking about mental health and some of the historical perspective around mental health, and uh, children and adults being criminalized and institutionalized in some of that treatment. And so we we have some trust factors. And I think particularly after, you know, George Floyd, Daniel Prude, and even working watching the nine-year-old here in Rochester, pepper sprayed by the police during a crisis. And so you have all these uh, tragedies and incidents that play out on and on and on over social media and we that are walking and living it know what our experience has been dealing with some of the systems where we have been treated unfairly you know not just yes because of our children with mental health conditions but also because of the color of our skin
0: yeah so Yeah, I just want to kind of briefly, um, before we kind of close talk about, you made mention of the project that uh, Rochester Regional is doing in in five schools. um, And a lot of the attention on children's mental health issues recently is as a result of a really concerning rise in the number of kids who are reporting, the number of families who are reporting having um, these challenges, the Children's agenda. We had a poll in February that that showed really high rates of children and families struggling uh, due to the pandemic. And what's your sense of of kind of where we are as a community in in trying to adapt to some of these increased needs? Um, Where are we kind of doing a decent job managing some of this? Where are we doing a particularly poor job? And and I know a lot of this comes down to resources and and staffing and, and things like that, but what are some things that we could be doing right now that would help help us rise to this, this moment of, of, of real crisis in this community and communities all over the country.
1: Right. Well, one of the things I know here at the, in this community, we have a new uh, mental health director, Dr. April Acock, who yeah. is open to hearing from parents and partnering with parents. So that is key for our community. Um, I, I think what we are doing uh, well is we're listening we are listening we're recognizing that uh we are in a crisis in a dilemma uh one of my concerns is that you know we're being reactive and and not proactive we're we're in this crisis now um that was going on prior to the pandemic yeah. and it's now escalated to a level that i consider a time bomb waiting to explode and and so we are being uh reactive in in allocating money we we've seen in the governor's budget uh some resources coming to the community but are we putting resources on services and systems that have been dysfunctional and not family and youth centered And that's where my concerns are that, yes, we are seeing some increased budget in some areas. Yes, we are trying to implement great restorative programs in schools. We're trying to get some more mental health centers in schools, but again, are we looking at it from the parent lens? And are we really elevating the parent voice to be a part of the strategy and program design and not just calling us around the table for an advisory board and throwing us a a gift card and feeding us a sandwich. Uh, Mm. There's some parents that can give you some amazing insights, not just me, hundreds of parents. We have parents connected to NAMI. We have parents connected to the Mental Health Association, Compare. We have some other organizations out there, Interfaith Denominational Ministry that are doing some amazing work common ground around child mental health and social emotional health ccsi so we we if we want the parent voice at the strategy in the program design level we can get it the question is do they want it and we can't keep throwing money on programs that were already not meeting the needs of our children and families and that concerns me yeah
0: yeah, so finding a way to use this, you know, you could reactive moment, but you know, moment where there's this attention on this and, and recognition that that something needs to be done, and to kind of ensure that we do the the best possible thing with with that new attention and funding and everything else, and um, and use maybe use it as a moment where we can also sort of build in that parent voice from the gr- ground level while we are getting new investments. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a good opportunity to, to revisit a whole bunch of things in our community. So. We, you talked about before but i do want to just kind of close around sort of this um, mental health simulation exercise that um that you've been working on with with other parents um what's sort of the timeline uh, for our listeners when can they expect to be able to to participate in that or to advocate that their elected official or whoever um, participates in it? what's what's sort of your hope for when that the rolls out and what are you doing between now and and the time that it rolls out
1: Well, we are collecting our data. We're meeting with parents and putting them through the simulation planning phase. That's what we're at now and collecting our data of what it would look like. Uh, Of course, we're working with Senator Brooke, uh, who we know is the chair of of the the Senate uh, Mental Health Committee and others that said we want to help. We trust the parent voice in your lived experience that can help us bring change. So over the summer, uh, we're hoping while the weather's nice, that we can host a couple more planning sessions uh, in the Royal communities, because uh, regardless of ethnicity, we wanna get the perspective of families in Royal communities. We are also hosting them in Buffalo and Syracuse and hosting them in Albany, as well as New York City. We wanna make sure that we get data that is reflective of the entire state as we roll out the simulators. And we're hoping that we will roll them out um, in the fall. And we want every uh, system, professionals from law enforcement, firemen, police officers, uh, universities, social work and counseling department, pediatricians, uh, we want school teachers, administrators, funders, grant makers, we want them to go through this simulator activity so as they were thinking about funding as they are thinking about policies and practices or or services that they really understand what it's like to be a parent navigating the mental health system or going through a psychiatric
0: crisis great yeah and that's it's really exciting that it's 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 coming soon and uh, and all sorts of people will be able to kind of have their eyes open to where these systems really fail and, and maybe they'll find some, some bright spots as well. Right. But, um, so I know we're running, we're running out of time. So I guess I'll, I'll sort of wrap up, um, there, but I, I just really want to thank you for joining me today. I really, I learned a lot from our conversation and, um, I hope our, our listeners did as well.
1: No, thank you so much. We are going to be hosting a number of symposiums in July in Rochester, Buffalo, and Syracuse, uh, particularly because July is national. Communities of Color Mental Health Month. Mm -hmm. So, we're going to be rolling out an anti stigma campaign, some videos, some media, um, billboards, and really uh, hitting home the message that breaking the stigma, breaking the silence means saving lives. So, thank you for having me here today.
0: Thanks so much for joining me today on Raising Rochester. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, including on social media, and feel free to send feedback or show ideas to me at pete at thechildrensagenda.org. Until next time, on behalf of The Children's Agenda, I'm Pete Naboski.